This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. As the U.S. and the world begin to come to terms with the enormity of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, questions have arisen about the role the World Health Organization played in the outbreak. The U.S. has expressed deep concerns over the way the WHO disseminated vital details of the earliest accounts of the outbreak and called into question the independence of its leadership. This dissatisfaction has culminated in the U.S. declaring its intent to sever its relationship with the organization. Did the WHO play a part in delaying the global reaction to COVID-19? Did politics play a substantial role in stifling the response? And if so, what is the most prudent course in dealing with the WHO going forward? Joining me today is Dr. Lan He Chen, American policy expert, academic, and political commentator. Dr. Chen currently serves as the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution. He's Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University and Lecturer in Law at Stanford Law School. In 2015, Dr. Chen was named one of the Politico 50, a list of the top thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics. Lanny has earned his undergrad, master's, law degree, and doctorate from Harvard. During his time at the, as a graduate student, Dr. Chen taught extensively as a teaching fellow and won the Harvard University Certificate for Distinction in Teaching eight times. Joining me from Pioneer is senior healthcare fellow Josh Archambault. Josh will share with us his views on the value of preserving integrity in public health institutions at the global, national, and state level. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks so much. For having me, Joe, I've been really enjoying listening to all the episodes. Thanks for saying. Uh, Josh, uh, as you know, uh, Hubwonk has been covering issues related to the pandemic for more than two months. Uh, Lately, I see a new focus on understanding the institutional failures that led to this disaster. The World Health Organization seems to be at the heart of some of the controversy. Are we likely to learn what went wrong there and what went wrong perhaps in other public health institutions? Yeah, and you know, I do think headlines and the spotlight is starting to shine a lot brighter on this. And even though we're somewhat still in the middle of all of this public health emergency, I do think it's the appropriate time to start to ask what lessons have we learned? Are there other sorts of transparency that's needed going forward so we can make sure that people have trust in these entities as they're making recommendations? Yes, uh, our, our guest, uh, Dr. Lenny Chan, has written extensively on this subject, so I'm eager to hear his views. So when we return, we'll be joined by Hoover Institution Fellow, Dr. Lan He Chan. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi with Pioneer's Josh Archambault. We're joined now by Hoover Institution Fellow, Dr. Lan He Chan. Welcome to the show, Lan He. Thank you very much for having me. So before uh, you left for Stanford, you spent a number of years going to school here in Massachusetts. Uh, Before we get into today's topic, uh, what do you miss most about living here in New England? Well, yeah, I spent a number of years there uh, for school and then working working afterwards for for Governor Romney when he ran for president. So I have a a great familiarity and and remember it uh, fondly. I would say I, I miss the food the most. I, I miss, you know, our office was in the North End. And so uh, we would frequently go out to the various eateries in, in the area. It wasn't great for my waistline, but was great for uh, for, for, for just uh, having exposure to 
a tremendous number of great restaurants there. So I, I think we missed that. And then the seasonality, uh, Joe, you know, we don't get seasons in Northern California. It's sort of always nice, uh, which, which is, which is great, but you, you do miss that first chill of the fall and, and, and then the, the, the nice warmth that you get in late spring, much like you're probably getting now. So uh, definitely things to miss about a, a great part of the country. Great. I, I agree. I love the seasons here, uh, but always nice doesn't sound too bad either. <laughs> It's not. It's not. So, all right. So let's let's get into our our topic. Uh, for our listeners who are not fluent in what the World Health Organization does, what is their charter, and who are their members? Well, the World Health Organization was created uh, in 1948, uh, and the original idea was that you needed an international body to coordinate uh, healthcare and public health issues that cross national borders, which uh, you know, as we've seen with the recent coronavirus pandemic, uh, there are situations where such a need exists. And so the body was created, uh, the United States actually played a big role in the founding of the WHO in 1948. And originally the concept was you'd have this organization that would, you know, classify diseases that would help with the distribution of medicines and the research and development into cures. So you know, the WHO has played a number of important roles over the years. It was responsible for the uh, distribution and, and counsel of, of the use of antibiotics in the 1950s. It was a, a big player in distributing the, the measles vaccine when it first became available in the early 1960s. Uh, it was responsible for eliminating smallpox uh, in 1979, uh, it was early in the fight against HIV AIDS in the 1980s. So, you know, there are a number of different things over the years the World Health Organization has been responsible for. The members of the WHO, you know, the, the, the organization has grown significantly over time to include uh, countries from all over the world, in Africa, uh, in Asia, in North America, South America, Europe. Uh, so the countries that form the World Health Organization meet once a year for a policymaking meeting in the form of a meeting of something called the World Health Assembly. And we just, uh, you know, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, had the annual meeting of the World Health Assembly, which, of course, this year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, occurred virtually. So the, the World Health Organization is, is an important international organization that plays a significant role in dealing with public health crises. And, and, you know, as I said, through its history has done many, many good things. Uh, we can talk about where the World Health Organization is now because I think, unfortunately, it, it hasn't uh, fulfilled some of the, the more aspirational elements of its charter that, uh, that all of us would hope it could. Well, I, uh, that's an impressive lineup of what, what they've conquered, including smallpox. So uh, we've just had a, a meeting, uh, obviously, the, I'm guessing, the top of the list on topics was COVID-19. Um, have they had an explanation for what went wrong uh, and uh, essentially what, what role they could have played in helping to prevent or mitigate the, uh, a global pandemic? Well, the, so the World Health Organization, uh, you know, I mentioned some of the history of it, and I suppose it's important to, to talk about what's happened in recent years because the World Health Organization has not covered itself in glory uh, in, in recent years, even before the current pandemic. So if you go back to the early 2000s, that was really the last time when the WHO 
I think had a really effective response to a, a global pandemic, or, or actually that one wasn't global, it was more regional. It was the, the severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS, which a lot of people see as the predecessor to this current COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic we're facing. When the WHO dealt with SARS in the early 2000s, it actually did so quite effectively and was able to contain uh, the disease, and it, it, we actually then did not see a recurrence of it uh, and haven't seen a recurrence of it since. Um, starting in the mid-2000s, though, the organization began to get a little bit more bureaucratic. It began to become uh, less effective in dealing with some of the elements of its charter. Um, if you fast forward, for example, to 2014, 2015, the World Health Organization really did quite poorly at responding to an outbreak of Ebola uh, in West Africa. And a lot of people view that as, as in fact, the, the low point for the WHO, at least until what we've seen recently with, with this coronavirus. So uh, a couple of things in the recent years have taken place that I think are relevant, Joe, to, to the conversation. First of all, the WHO uh, elects every five years a director general who is in charge of the organization. And, and in, um, uh, back in 2017, the WHO selected a, um, a man by the name of Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, uh, who goes by uh, Dr. Tedros. He prefers to be called by his first name. Dr. Tedros uh, has been the director general of the group now uh, since then. And uh, was previous to his time on the WHO, a senior leader in Ethiopia. He was the uh, foreign minister and also was the health minister. And, you know, frankly, had terms that were clouded in a lot of controversy, including accusations that he covered up several cholera outbreaks uh, while he was health minister. Um, in any case, the election of, of Dr. Tedros was interesting because his election was backed heavily by uh, countries in Africa who had never seen a director general of the WHO from that continent, although that continent obviously has had some significant public health uh, issues and needs over over the years. But interestingly enough, Tedros was also backed heavily by the People's Republic of China. And uh, his election was seen in some ways as a milestone for the PRC because of a now years-long campaign that the PRC has had to control international organizations like the World Health Organization by ensuring that leaders who are elected to lead those organizations are sympathetic to Beijing's point of view. And so the World Health Organization is one amongst many organizations that they've sort of been involved in leadership elections of. And uh, Dr. Tedros, during his time as director general, has exhibited a tendency to be overly cozy with Beijing, and in particular, overly close to President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, and certainly it's, it's the case that as this coronavirus uh, pandemic began, uh, the fact that the virus has its origins in China um, was not lost on anybody who witnessed the WHO's response, which was decidedly um, slow in terms of, I think slow in terms of identifying the threat to other countries in the rest of the world. Uh, but also, fundamentally, the desire of the organization to get to the bottom of how the virus began, how it began its spread, the role that China plays, 
those are all questions that the WHO has ignored. And uh, unfortunately, those are questions that it would be useful to have the answers to as we're thinking about how to deal with this pandemic as it continues to this day. Wow, uh, very interesting. Uh, I, I find that uh, a bit chilling that the World Health Organization, uh, an organization tasked with world health, uh, could be uh, perhaps corrupted, is that a fair word, by its, um, its leader's sponsor. Um, in, in getting into a little bit of inside baseball, are we looking at something uh, like a bipolar world in which we have a, a U.S. Um, group that is uh, encouraging one uh, perspective and a Chinese group per, um, focusing on a different perspective. And honestly, and I forgive the na- naivete of the question, what incentive would a World Health Organization have for offering anything other than a laser-like focus on world health? Well, it's, it, it's a good question. So I think that the, these international organizations and the World Health Organization is just one example. There are others as well. Um, they have become, as bureaucratic organizations tend to over time, uh, less focused on their substantive target and more focused on, frankly, the, the political overlay. Uh, it, it isn't the case that uh, the World Health Organization is unique in this regard, but it is certainly the case that it's probably the most impactful uh, situation or example we can think of, given the fact that we are dealing with this pandemic currently. Uh, I, I would say this, not everything the WHO does is bad. Not everything the WHO is doing is bad. Not everything the WHO is trying to engage in, even in this coronavirus pandemic, is bad. In fact, a lot of what they're doing is admirable. The, the problem is not with those who try to fulfill the public health mission of the WHO. The problem is with the leadership, Joe. If the leadership of an organization itself is leading in a poor direction, the rest of the organization, even if that organization is doing well, suffers for it. And so the, the question I would ask is more, why is Tedros so interested in placating China? Why is he so interested in ensuring that China's interests are represented, even when those interests conflict with the best interests of public health? And, and there are several examples in the current crisis alone that suggest uh, Tedros's willingness to side with China in a political play rather than the, the sort of better public health play. So, so let me offer a few examples of this. First of all, uh, when the virus was initially going uh, through Wuhan in China, there was a question of whether the virus could be transmitted from human to human, or whether in fact the virus was simply transmitted between, let's say, animal or, or livestock, or uh, you know, some kind of form of animal and, and human being. Um, China knew at a quite early stage, or at least had strong suspicion to believe that the virus, because it was respiratory in nature, uh, could be transmitted between humans. And yet China did not reveal that information to the world until several weeks, in fact, uh, six weeks after the initial patients were reported to have shown up with symptoms from, from, this, from this coronavirus. Um, their delay in so doing was then also transmitted to the World Health Organization, such that the World Health Organization did not um, tell the world that the virus could be transmitted from human to human until after they heard from China that it could. And beyond that, they actually parroted China's talking points on this at a very early early phase of the crisis. So in mid-January, when 
people had strong suspicion that the virus could be transmitted from human to human, the WHO was still saying, you know, don't worry, this cannot likely cannot be transmitted from human to human. Um, compounded with that has been the WHO's continuing refusal to allow for input from Taiwan. Uh, now, Taiwan is a relevant player in this story because it sits less than 100 miles at its closest point from the Chinese mainland across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, Taiwan, of course, is considered by China to be a renegade province. And because China believes Taiwan is part of it, China has repeatedly blocked Taiwan's participation at the WHO. And under the leadership of Tedros, uh, this denial of Taiwan's participation has continued. Well, this is a problem, you see, because Taiwan has not only effectively responded to the coronavirus, in fact, there have been plenty of stories about how effective Taiwan has been in tamping down domestic transmission of the disease. In fact, they haven't had a domestic case, I think, in 30 days or longer as we record this, uh, this podcast. And so uh, uh, Taiwan's story is relevant, not only because of how well they've done and the advice and counsel they could give to the rest of the world, but aren't being allowed to give because of the WHO, but also Taiwan very early on in late December uh, sounded the alarm at the WHO regarding this issue of human to human transmission. And so the denial of Taiwan's participation, not just in big meetings where it's largely ceremonial, but frankly, the technical committee meetings of the WHO, where a lot of the important work of public health is done, the denial of Taiwan's participation, I think, ends up being a huge problem and demonstrates this, this trend we've been talking about, which is a trend to put politics over public health. So clearly we have a problem. I know that last week in a strongly worded letter, the U.S. administration expressed deep concerns about the leadership of the World Health Organization and very recently even declaring uh, its intent to withdraw from the organization itself. Uh, so clearly there's uh, at least concerns and, and, and big problems. Is the uh, health, World Health Organization inviting scrutiny of its processes? Is it, is it concerned that at least from the U.S. perspective, uh, there's a great deal of doubt as to the integrity of the organization itself? Well, not just from the U.S. perspective, I should say, Joe. The, the Australians, the Canadians, the Japanese, there are several uh, countries who are members of the WHO. Australia has been the most vocal of them, have, have also expressed doubts about the WHO's response in this situation. And it's not, as, I, as we talked about earlier, it's not as if the WHO has never had problems before. It, it, it has. And so I think there are some systemic issues, but certainly the question of China's involvement in this particular situation has, has raised a lot, of, a lot of alarm bells. Um, the WHO agreed in its World Health Assembly meeting a few weeks ago to launch an investigation into uh, the origins of the virus. But notably, that investigation was to be conducted by the WHO itself. I, I think what really is needed is an outside investigation and evaluation, not only of how the virus began. I think those questions are important as we continue to battle this, this pandemic in the United States and around the world. That is certainly important. But the other piece of it that is really pivotal in my mind is um, getting to the bottom of the WHO's failures itself. And it is simply inconceivable to me, Joe, that you would ask an organization to investigate itself when you're trying to determine what the faults were in that organization's uh, actions and reactions to, uh, to a particular event. So I think the United States would be well served to continue to use its leverage. We, we didn't talk about this piece. The U.S. Is, is the WHO's biggest funder by far. 
the WHO has about a $4 billion budget. And the United States in any given year provides about 10% of that budget, okay? So we are the world's biggest donor. Incidentally, the world's second biggest donor is not China. It's actually the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The WHO permits funding from private uh, organizations, nonprofit as well as for-profit. And so while the U.S. contribution to the WHO is somewhere in the 400 to $500 million ballpark a year, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gives uh, about 300 to 400 million a year. So they give quite a bit as well. But, but anyway, the point is, um, we are under a, a, we are in a great position to uh, force the WHO to do some things. And so uh, what I would hope is that the current administration would use this leverage and use this, this pressure point uh, to reform the WHO to try and improve what it does and to shed light on some of the challenges the organization faces today. Very interesting. I, I wanna bring Josh Archambault from Pioneer into the discussion. Uh, Pioneer uh, focuses primarily on state level public health issues. Uh, Josh, what parallels are you seeing here with our conversation about the WHO? Uh, and what would you like to ask Lanhee? Yeah, you know, I'm actually really enjoying because Pioneer doesn't typically talk about international issues, but I, I do think that there's a really interesting tie here. And, and in my mind, you know, we have Governor Baker, we have state public health entities, we have local public health entities, and they're typically looking towards the CDC or even often the World Health Organization. So, Lenny, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on how should state policymakers be thinking about receiving information from organizations like the World Health Organization, when sometimes they and others are having conflicting information, reporting out different kinds of information on different time frames, How do you think policymakers should be digesting this sort of information? And what sorts of best practices need to be out there to make sure that they're getting timely information they can trust? Yeah, this is a great question. And it highlights why, um, an understanding of what the WHO is doing is so critical uh, because so many policymakers and so many public health professionals do rely on WHO guidance. Look, Massachusetts is home to some of the world's finest institutions of public health and institutions of health care. Uh, it, it's blessed to have those institutions, to have wonderful researchers and scientists and doctors who are on the front lines of fighting this pandemic. Uh, I, I personally believe that the state has benefited from, from great leadership in the form of a, of a strong governor and a good executive team. Uh, I, I, I think it's important for the public sector and the private sector to work together in dealing with these challenges. And you know, certainly the WHO plays a role in disseminating information. It plays a role in helping to coordinate activities, for example, around vaccine research, which is, which is critical to getting out of this crisis. But I think that um, anytime you have institutions that are relying too much on any other single institution, particularly one like the WHO, where there's reason to, to have question, uh, I, I think it creates some challenges. And so it is important to uh, see public sector institutions working together with private sector institutions to share best practices for private institutions and nonprofit institutions to share uh, what they're seeing in terms of the best ways of fighting coronavirus, the best ways of dealing with patients who have advanced courses of it, who, are, who have been hospitalized and have very serious conditions. Um, that kind of information sharing at the local level 
as well as at the local and state level are crucially important. And so Massachusetts is the potential source of a lot of information, quite frankly, for the rest of the country. Uh, we can learn a lot from what all of you are experiencing and seeing and doing to respond to the virus. And that information is additive, Josh. It's not, it's not meant to replace what the WHO is doing. It's meant to, to sort of give us additional perspective. So just as with uh, all kinds of, of scientific responses, you take a lot of different data points. And the WHO data point is one of them. So I've encouraged policymakers, I've encouraged those in this field to be um, to be skeptical, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, to be skeptical of information they're getting, not just from the WHO, but from all sources, to try and, and pressure test assumptions. And I think having that healthy skepticism of all the information coming in will lead us to the right answers and will lead us to the best course of action in dealing with this pandemic. You know, and Lenny, one of the big focuses for Pioneer has been transparency in general, whether it's been this uh pandemic and being the first organization in the state to call for uh, more state state data to be broken down by city or town um, <clears throat> and that eventually happening. I, I guess I, I'm a little curious to hear your thoughts on how do you balance transparency without overwhelming the public? And I, I think the public is quite sophisticated. I don't think we give them quite enough uh, credit, but at the same time, if you cut data a million different ways, sometimes it's unclear how they're, how you, what, what really matters. Is positive tests what matters or is hospitalizations what matters? How do you make sure that we're having a, a sufficient transparency to make sure that we actually understand what's going on, while at the same time making sure that we're basing policy on the data that really matters and making sure that the public understands generally what we're recommending they follow? Yeah, I tend to think that... Um more data, I mean, I, I take the view that more data and more transparency is generally a good thing. Um, I, I would say that the, the data and the conclusions that are being drawn by government at all levels needs to be accompanied by clear explanations. And I think the biggest frustration to me is when, uh, you know, uh, government agencies just release a bunch of data but don't contextualize it or don't give you a sense of why something is important. And so transparency is not just about the numbers and the raw data, it's also about what am I seeing here? And you know, it, it, obviously we don't expect them to, to give us full context. That's why organizations like Pioneer exist to a certain degree is to provide that contextualization and a fuller picture. But being able to give you data and then being able to take that data and say, here is what here is how you are to understand where this data is coming from. Here are the sources of the data. I mean, having transparency around, uh, around those elements in terms of an explanatory um, piece of information, I think is really key. So, um, you know, with the WHO, I mean, to go back to that for a minute, I think that the challenge there is even more basic than just, you know, give us the data by X, Y, and Z breakouts. It's really kind of, help us understand how it is we got here and the role that the WHO played either in, in, you know, I suppose the least charitable interpretation is aiding and abetting China's story early on with respect to the coronavirus, which was not frankly an accurate story, or, uh, you know, is there something we're missing? And having that transparency is really key. And, and there are those who say, well, look, let's just wait until the pandemic is done to force the issue. 
Um, I, I couldn't disagree more wholeheartedly with that point of view because I don't think this can wait. I think to your point, you know, a lot of people are basing decisions on information they're getting from the WHO. And unless we have a sense of how the organization is performing and how much we can rely on what they're telling us, uh, we're really flying blind to a certain degree as we go into what might be a second and hopefully not, but maybe even third wave of this, of this virus as we move into the latter half of 2020. Um, we need to know what we're dealing with. And so this kind of investigation, this kind of a, uh, a determination of what actually happened, I think is really critical. And Lenny, as I hand this back to Joe, one last question. I'd be curious whether it applies to WHO or other public health entities, what are the quote unquote best practices that are needed? Because inevitably when we read news stories now, there's always one public health entity questioning reopening the economy, no matter mm -hmm. what it is. And, and I'd just be curious to rebuild trust, to make sure that folks of very different stripes have confidence in the agencies that are putting out recommendations. What sorts of characteristics do you need to have? We've talked a little bit about transparency and accountability, but are there other things that you can think of that we should really be expecting? I would say that there needs to be a clear statement that policy responses are not binary or shouldn't be binary. In other words, I think that the problem that we get, the reason why people get frustrated is because it seems sometimes like public health agencies, for example, are, are, are viewing the question of reopening or not reopening through a binary lens. In other words, you either reopen or you don't. And in fact, I think what most people need to realize is that there is some element of risk calculation in every policy decision we um, and more than that, every decision we make, you know, on a regular basis every day, right? Do you get into your car and drive to the supermarket? That entails some amount of risk because you're getting in your car and you're going somewhere. And you mitigate the risk by driving defensively, by wearing a seatbelt, by having a vehicle that's got appropriate safety protocols, et cetera. Um, the same applies, I think, to this current coronavirus pandemic in the sense that public health agencies need to be clear and local and state leaders need to be clear that the choice is not a binary one. That in fact, what, what we're doing is trying to create a pathway that doesn't eliminate risk or doesn't even completely minimize risk, but tries to create an acceptable amount of risk for people as they, as they move through each day. And the question of what is acceptable will ultimately be determined by uh, by political leadership. It's by, you know, people who are elected by you and I and all of us to represent us in a way that reflects the values and the, and the positions on issues that the majority of that particular uh, jurisdiction wants. And so it, it, it's really just the challenge, I think, sometimes is when you hear these proclamations without contextualization or you hear proclamations as, you know, very sort of black or white choices when, in fact, in many situations, policymaking, particularly in this context, is just not that easy. And, and there's a lot more nuance to it than you might expect. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time together. So I want to ask one last question. Um, you've spoken uh, in mixed terms about the World Health Organization. You've, you've heaped a great deal of praise on all their work they've done since 1947 when they began. Uh, and perhaps they're not on the right track at this moment. And the U.S. is doing what it can to... Uh, to express their concern. Uh, 
Are you optimistic that the current measures the administration is taking or that the world and its other uh, objectors to the to, to what happened with COVID-19, are you confident that uh, with the guidance of member countries, uh, we can get the World Health Organization back on track and, and to be the trusted organization it has been? Um, I, I, I'm hopeful, I suppose, that we will have an organization that plays a pivotal role in addressing these public health challenges. Uh, the WHO has a lot of the infrastructure to do that, and so to start over would be would be costly uh, and and would be challenging. But I do think that the United States and I think countries that uh, are around the world are interested in having an organization that responds to public health crises effectively, takes into account, of course, the input of member nations, but ultimately, at the end of the day prioritizes public health over politics. So I'm, I'm optimistic we'll have an organization that does that. I'm optimistic that we will have an organization that will effectively respond to future pandemics. Um, I have a pretty good sense that organization is going to be the WHO, but I'll just say that I, I think the need for an organization that responds faithfully and well when we reach these public health crises is absolutely critical. And I, for one, am, am, am certainly supportive of international cooperation in this area. I think the U.S. cannot and should not go it alone. Uh, but I do believe that the WHO, as currently constituted, is fundamentally flawed. And to not fix it does a disservice not only to people around the world who need accurate and timely information, response to that information, uh, but, but certainly to us here in the United States as a big contributor and a big piece of the puzzle of international public health, uh, we need to have comfort with the fact that we are sending taxpayer dollars and those dollars are being used responsibly and well for the purposes that, that they're intended for. Well, thank you very much, Lanhe. I appreciate your, uh, your informed uh, uh, and educated opinion on the World Health Organization, a very complex uh, issue. Uh, you understand it well. And, and thanks for helping to bring Hubwonk this podcast to the broad world uh, beyond our, our, the limits of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. This is a first for us, so we appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Okay, we're back. Josh, that was refreshing to hear Lan He lay out the issues concerning the World Health Organization. I thought the controversy was a simple matter, but... Um, there's, uh, if you're looking for someone to blame for this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the story is actually a bit more complex. Yeah, and I think it's actually a really important reminder for us that as we focus on one state or even the U.S., we're in a global world. And so whether it's viruses or trade or taxes or anything like that, that the institutions like the World Health Organization, they do impact how they operate, how the decisions that they make, the information and data that they put out does influence the decisions that we make locally. And just a really important reminder, not only of that, but also I thought what he was talking about, about looking at an acceptable amount of risk, that policy isn't always binary, I think is a very important reminder for us as we try to make difficult policy decisions that there's always a spectrum and different levers that we can pull. Yes, uh, I don't know whether to be uh, relieved that global 
institutions get captured by political actors, just the way our state and federal uh, institutions are. Uh, it's a little bit disheartening to see that uh, with World Health on the line that uh, these distortions have found their way into that organization. But uh, let's hope if uh, any of the policy leaders are listening to our show, uh, we can get the organization back on track and, um, and be ready so that something like COVID-19 doesn't happen again. Thank you very much for joining us on Hubwonk, Josh. Thanks. This has been Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show, there are three ways you can support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can write a review, or you can subscribe to the show. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute. To learn more about Pioneer or Hubwonk, please join us at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join us next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <laughs>